The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. With expertise in more than 60 categories of collecting, its specialists will connect you with your passion. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. It's the very first Freeze Los Angeles Art Fair this week, so later on in the podcast I'll be speaking to Joey Finkel, our LA-based correspondent, about expectations of the fair and the effect on the art scene there. We'll also talk about Desert X, the biennial that opened last week in California's Coachella Valley. But first this week, artist livelihoods. At the end of last year, Arts Council England published a report with new research it had funded, conducted by TBR, Trends Business Research, that attempted to gain a fuller understanding of the challenges for artists in Britain in the 21st century, and particularly the myriad factors affecting their ability to survive as artists. It painted a picture in which the vast majority of artists are struggling to make much money from their work and to balance creating their art with the demands of living. Meanwhile, Tai Shani, an artist who showed her work at the Glasgow International, Nottingham Contemporary and the Tetley and Leeds, among others, last year and featured in the Guardian art critic Adrian Searle's top 10 exhibitions of 2018, wrote a thread on Twitter explaining the difficulties she's encountered in dedicating time to her work and developing it amid the competing demands of life outside her practice. Ty joins me now, as does James Doser, a former senior researcher at the Arts Council who contributed to this latest report. James has also written an opinion piece on the issue of artists' livelihoods for the current print edition of the art newspaper. Ty, I wonder if we might begin by revisiting your Twitter thread about this. Firstly, what did you want to say and, and why did you want to say it? OK, I think I, think I was um, compelled to, um, I guess, share these experiences at that specific point because uh, for all intents and purposes last year has been a very uh, good year for me and and I I was very lucky to receive a lot of Arts Council funding and to to have shows in very high visibility context so I think it was important I felt that somebody who was visible say these things and not um, someone who could be dismissed as obviously struggling, I guess. Um, I think also it's that thing where you you become an artist and you have this span, this time span ahead of you. And I, I personally don't have children, so that never was kind of a factor in terms of um, having to become more more uh, sustainable financially. And I always deferred um, financial sustainability and made choices based on pure kind of this is a good opportunity or this is interesting these are interesting people I like the project these kind of things Mm. Um, but I'm 43 now and and my family are beginning to I I need to contribute to their kind of uh, later life care I guess and so thinking about again revisiting the idea of what uh, sustainable means in terms of being an artist and I I'm, I teach at the Royal College of Art as well so I, I hold a point six, which is a three day a week post and that has always sustained um, or helped my practice but I think it was to do with age I guess or this idea that I'm working so hard all the time getting ill from working so much and I'm just persistently broke and that even when I'm not completely broke, it's not the kind of uh, money that you could think about helping someone else with, or, or do you know what I mean? Like any yeah. kind of like it does. It's it's never the kind of money that takes you outside of the realms of precarity. Right. And I know for a fact that many people um, share, many artists share this experience, and we do talk about this a lot. And I was quite surprised at, at um, people kind of seeing it as brave or courageous because the idea of saying that you're not wealthy that there's shame attached to that and to me that that also like relates to what why people get away with not paying people because people do perform a type of affluence um as artists to not alienate certain people and yeah so I thought it was the right time for me to say something about it but also there have been conversations behind closed doors and I think also in the last few years a lot of the more kind of medium-sized galleries um, a lot of them have closed down so they're also in precarious kind of models where they're having to uh, pay huge kind of fees to be in art fairs and struggling to kind of sustain that as well. 
and that and also those galleries would be the galleries that would be supporting practices that weren't necessarily very object based. Yeah, your, that's yours right. is a, yours an example of a practice where you're not producing vast amounts of saleable objects, no, absolutely. right? Absolutely, yeah, that's right. And um, I think so. My, my kind of platforms are usually inst- institutions, and I guess in maybe. It's a little bit of a hangover of the art market or something where, um, you know, for galleries, it's very good if their commercial artists have um, presence within critical and institutional context because it brings their prices up as well. So I think there's this idea that if it's an institution or a public space or, you know, like funded in other means, that it's okay not to pay artists because they're giving them a a different type of capital, really. Can can you explain how an artist that doesn't produce lots of saleable objects might make a living from, you know, you've talked about your teaching role, but is there Mm. any way that you make money from your art? Yeah, I mean, I I get commissions and I get fees, um, but fees are in no way reflective of the amount of work that goes into making the work. And they can range from, I'm, I'm not going to, to name names, but they can range from anywhere from 300 to 3,000. Um, and that could be, you You could be paid 300 for a job that took you, uh, a project, you know, that took you three months to make. Yeah. Like there's no correlation whatsoever. There's no standard. There's no regulation. It, it's really up to... Uh, you can try asking for more. I know some people that have, and and that's been successful. But that's also quite gendered, often. Um, so I think that there are real issues around how artists that then can, I guess, have this visibility, have a kind of idea where you know where their work is being written about, and and institutions are benefiting from that as well. They need to be remunerated, basically. That yeah. you know, that's the thing. So commissions, I do a little bit of mentoring. Um, I sell very occasionally, but you know, no- nothing that again would be something that you could rely on in any way. Um, and that's interesting, yeah. isn't it? Because as you say, you know, let's n- name some um, some projects that you've been involved in, like the Glasgow International. If you if you see that an artist is featuring this in this major international survey which attracts press uh, you know critics professionals directors and curators from across the world yeah. you would think it represented a kind of success that might be reflected in some form of remuneration yeah and i mean that's the thing is that let's say if you you look at theater uh, people do get paid for um, you know ephemeral works i think I'd, yeah there's a kind of shift of perception that needs to happen and there i have ideas of what could help I guess but I think you're right and particularly for people who aren't artists and I mean by that like um, you know even people that do uh, go to galleries quite often or go go and experience art quite often I think there is this idea that you are paying a lot more than you are and in fact you know I have students that I asked them how much they thought I would get you know a fee or how much one would would get as a fee for things like that and it was completely unrealistic you know so I think there is there's a real issue there. James how widely is this experience that Ty's describing uh, sort of uh, experienced elsewhere in 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 the art world? Yeah and I'm I'm really pleased we've got Ty here because um, what I'm hearing in her account of her working practice as an artist um, is completely typical of some of the dynamics that are at work in the UK art sector um, and Everything that Ty has described in terms of uh, finding sources of funding, uh, being entrepreneurial about the use of her time, um, mobilizing what network she has available to her to uh, seek out opportunities to make and show and sell and to talk about her work are entirely reflective of a pretty kind of typical situation for a practicing visual artist in in the, in the UK in, in 2019. And it's different than what might have been experienced 20 or 30 years ago. Um, and it encodes this way in which Ty talks about being a practicing artist and what counts as success uh, and the importance of uh, displaying or reflecting some of the markers of success and um, you know, I really appreciate Ty's candid uh, description of like whether that reflects the real underlying reality of a of a of a life of an artist today. Um, is 
a reflection of some of our um, cultural notions of success and what an artist is and what work is. So, um, so much of what's involved in being an artist uh, is about the degree to which you're able to uh, kind of embody and live the vision that you have for yourself as what an artist actually means, what being an artist entails. Um, and that's different in different cultures and different times and places. But um, it's a it's a kind of wicked uh, dilemma for an artist to be in because um, there's virtue in being poor and struggling, but there's kind of virtue in being uh, successful and glamorous and, you know, on the bedroom walls of Saatchi's 5,000 houses and on the, you know, gallery walls of the elite arts organizations around the world. Whereas where you actually uh, are able to go about producing work, finding representation, finding galleries, finding a profile, selling work, keeping the production line going whilst also thinking about audiences, while also thinking about your professional representation, while also thinking about all the other things in your life that have nothing to do with your art, like your family, like your housing, um, all these sorts of things. It's a really, really tough existence. And that's borne out in the statistics from the report. And it's what I hear also in Ty's account of what it's like to live and work as an artist today. Before we get onto the statistics of the report, um, that that idea that somehow it's okay for an artist to be poor is like a received notion of art, of artists. Literally, this kind of cliche of the artist in the garret that mm. somehow is a sort of romanticised view of art making, which is actually only experienced by very few artists in history, but somehow has transmitted itself to be an acceptable vision of an artist for our age. Is that it, is that how you feel, Tony? Not at all. And I think it's a really classist idea as well, because ultimately people that do not have the support of generational wealth are not able to dabble into that fantasy of being poor. I mean, like being poor, like actual poverty, as opposed to some kind of like uh, cash poor are two completely different things and I think that that is also something that's really like an issue in the art world is that there is the idea of poverty like oh you know like um, I don't, I can't go on holidays or whatever and there's the idea of like I do not have generational wealth there are there is no there are no assets within my family like I actually need to be able to support myself in a meaningful way to survive and I think to me that's the issue here is that Art schools are, are becoming more and more popular in this country, becoming more and more expensive as well. And for working class people that do come into art schools, you know, if I, I, I feel like there's a, a lack of integrity around, around the, the lack of transparency about that. Because even if you do become visible, you still might not be in any position to, to survive. And if you want any kind of semblance of, of a... A comfortable life, you know, that goes even further, I guess. But even just like basic things of having a situation where an unexpected emergency comes. That's what I mean by actual poverty and not like middle class type poverty. Romantic poverty. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there are statistics actually in the report, aren't, aren't there, that allude to this fact that actually people who have the ability to call on uh, money from their family and things like that can get on a bit better. It, it, that's right, isn't it, James? Yeah, so the the way in which people fund their lives through their art uh, tends to be that your art practice generates only a very small proportion of your overall income as an artist. And you might well then ask the question, well, how do you, how do you live? How do you go shopping? How do you pay your rent? How do you support your family? And quite often the answer is that artists either draw work uh, income from other forms of employment, which may have nothing to do with their artistic practice or their interests whatsoever, or quite often uh, they are able to draw on income from maybe they rent out a room in their house where they've already paid off the mortgage, maybe they can call on the bank of mum and dad, um, maybe there is some sponsor or champion in their lives who's able to provide something like some accommodation or you know support their practice or the acquisition of materials or some studio space and not everybody has those uh, opportunities at their disposal and uh, it's a really wicked problem for people who are interested in 
making it as an artist, but also those who are interested in designing support systems like you know funding or art school curricula or thinking about professional development on behalf of the entire sort of working cohort of visual artists in the UK. It's a, it's a really, really tricky problem to solve. So I think one of, the, one of the really tricky things is thinking about like the pipeline of people coming through art schools and the great expansion in higher education and education more generally across the visual arts and wider art sector. Because uh, at university level and in the art schools, pop courses are very, very popular. Uh, and in the UK... You know, they attract students, fee-paying students from around the world. Um, and it's a real vibrant marketplace. Uh, you know, the, the production of uh, fine art degrees is a, is a really vibrant and successful part of the kind of creative industries in, in, the, in the UK. And so what does that mean for an ever-growing body of emerging artists that are coming into um, their, you know, to develop their practice, whether that's to pursue further postgraduate study or to enter the marketplace or to uh, go into education or these sorts of things. And it's it's a way in which the art sector in the UK is relatively typical of other um, industries or other sectors where there is a very small number of available pots of money, a very small number of available entry-level jobs, um, a workforce that is really difficult to get into and to travel through. And nobody is quite prepared to say that we need fewer artists or that we should reduce the number of visual arts students or that we need to kind of put up the, pull up the drawbridge in some way because it cuts against everything that people feel about with you know, wider participation in, in arts and culture and that art should be for everyone and that everyone should get the opportunity to participate. Um, and it's a real tough question for policymakers is, you know, what do you do where there's no barri barrier to entry into the workplace or the marketplace? Um, it's a very, very popular pursuit. Uh, and what happens is what Ty's described incredibly well is that those with privilege to draw upon will weaponize that privilege in a way that means that the finite options that exist for all artists are mostly gobbled up by those with the means to capture that opportunity. Totally, and just to draw on that a little bit further, is you, you know the, the cuts that were made to humanities are ideological as well, and I think that that you know is part of the issue is that if you have somebody who um, has uh, a relative that passed away and that they received a little bit of money and they've decided to invest that in in a postgraduate degree in in you know fine art or any any of the kind of more speculative uh, um, disciplines it's completely not okay that they have nowhere to to go after that basically Toy, you're you're te you are literally teaching yeah. these this yeah. you know a, a large number of students. Do they seek professional advice from you? You talked about how they've got unrealistic expectations, perhaps of the fees that they might be paid. But do they? Do you? Do you can you give them professional advice? Is it? Is it? Does it? Is it? Is actually sort of an invidious position to be in, in the sense that it's it's difficult to advise? Them? It is a very difficult thing to advise, and I think that we try. Um, you know, I think it's always a kind of very um, delicate interplay between an ideal situation and a realistic situation. So I think there are certain provisions which are made that would demonstrate um, what the ideal situation for someone with a specific type of practice would be. But then within more kind of informal conversations, we also talk very much about what the reality um, of it is. But I th I'd like to go back a little bit to um, this idea of you know arts being for everybody. I, I completely believe in the transformative power of art, really, and I do think that I, I've done a lot of arts council applications in my life, and this idea of participation and access is very important, and it should be as public money. But then, to me, there's like it's almost like a false flag a bit because you know, putting the impetus on the artist to kind of uh, think about these things, which they absolutely should. But then on the other hand, you have this system which doesn't pay people, that is completely reliant on free labor, that like trades in a kind of invisible economy of influence and, and weird forms of capital. And to me, that like, how can you expect people to be interested in this realm that they wouldn't be able to survive in. So, to, you know, that the 
problems are really structural and they're not about like saying, oh, you have to do it with these uh, in this area or with these uh, people. It's like the actual issues are very, very core and all the other problems emanate from those core issues. And that's a really interesting point because also you've got this market where there's vast sums of money sloshing yes. about. Mm-hmm. So and, and 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 in some ways the sort of the reliance on that private sector is growing. So we know, for instance, that lots of museum shows call on funding. Yep. You'll see the name of a yep. big gallery at the bottom of the, the the people who have been credited with helping with funding. Yeah. So in a way, there's a self self perpetuating system where the big galleries and the artists that show with them get the more museum shows, whereas people that are in in a much more emergent scene may be denied that because they don't have gallery representation and all that so is when we talk about how it how we might come up with solutions for this does do we need to consider how the public sector relates to the private sector um i don't i don't want to go completely class war now but at the same time i do think you know there's an industry around um arts philanthropy and patronship and there's a complete uh, asymmetry between what, you know, like a patron might um, gift a thousand pounds a year to an institution. And in return for that, they get invited to the dinners, um, you know, previews. They get a lot for that thousand pounds. And I think that's part of the thing is that, of course, it is naive and ideological to kind of uh, want to to shift the balance of power in that way. But there is like something quite ironic about that, about like someone putting in uh, an amount that would be completely of no importance and no significance whatsoever and getting quite an amazing return while, um, you know, artists struggle to kind of be able to afford childcare. I mean, that's the thing is that, you know, we still talk about artists still particularly women artists or, or um, you know, artists that want to have children, um, still have to make that decision unless they have generational wealth. Can I, have, can I afford to have children, basically? And Is it, it becomes then a choice about life versus art, and yeah. therefore some people will stop making it. And we know that in the report there are instances of people who are in precarious positions yeah. who decide to, who are more vulnerable and decide that they that they can't make art anymore. Yeah. James, do you want yeah. to say something about that? I mean, uh, just coming back to your description of the fact that there is a marketplace here with m- money flowing through it um, in ways that are just kind of mind-boggling. And what you're describing there is a winner-takes-all market, right? It's the same in things like, uh, if, you know, if you want to send your kid to a football academy in the hope that they become a Premier League football star, right? The odds are stacked against the vast majority of people in the pipeline, but the very few that succeed at the end of it take all of the, all of the prizes, basically. Um, and it's a kind of, it's a cruel and wicked thing, really, because, uh, you know, people are motivated to to make art and to become artists, not by the pot of gold that is at the end of the rainbow, but because of the, uh, you know, the kind of existential pleasure and the merits to themselves and society that comes from being a kind of creative force in the world. And that's a brilliant and magical thing. And there are many who appreciate that and are, you know, looking for ways to devise a system that can support as much of that activity as possible. But... Um, the, the the question then is you know what uh, what can you do to prevent people from falling out of this pipeline, especially with the recognition that those most likely to fall out of the pipeline are those without privilege, perhaps with caring responsibilities, perhaps with disabilities. Uh, you know any point of friction that you experience as a member of a precarious labour force. Uh, is felt more profoundly than it would be if you know you had a full time salary job with a pension and holiday pay and those sorts of things. So it's a really tough ask, and I you know I think um, it agonises uh, people at the Arts Council, and it agonises others who are kind of progressive arts sector professionals in the UK that. Um, those who are most vulnerable are those who kind of suffer most in this sort of marketplace. Um, there is, of course, this entirely parallel world 
of that commercial art market where, you know, if you do have the propulsive forces of good networks and, um, you know, champions, uh, representation, um, access to resources, then you have a better chance of being one of those tiny minority that wins in this winner-takes-all market. And that's a kind of... It's a it's a really kind of cruel thing to to sort mm. of see as someone who's interested in researching this sector and doing some social science and measuring these kind of things, hopefully with a view to making things slightly more equal and giving people a fairer chance at success. But uh, it's hard to see how that might happen mm. with the system that we have at the moment. Yeah, and it, or, or of course, as you say, for you know these, I'm by no means uh, the, in the most difficult position. You know that the only reason why. I felt it's important to say something was because I felt I was in a position that might be misunderstood, but I'm by no means, um, you know, suffering. I'm, I still live in London. I teach, um, you know, a lot of people are also precarious in their academic jobs. So, you know, that mm. precarity, I'm I'm relatively um, lucky, basically, you know, um, teaching a lot of people are on zero hour contracts, even the ones that do draw for, um, money from other sources, that's also precarious. So in a way, you know, I am very lucky. But I do think that there, there are, um, it, it obviously like also on, on all these kind of, as you say, like called it frictions or, or, or um, difficulties really fall on gendered and racial lines as well you know and I think that's again like going back to, to what uh, these bodies put at the at the forefront of their um, political agenda needs to be backed up in a meaningful way it can't just be a kind of um, exploitation of people's identities and then that's it kind of it has to be um, sustained further really. That's interesting do you have thoughts about how that might be possible either of you i mean i i have a few thoughts but i i haven't like none of these are means tested obviously <laughs> they're just but i i mean there are many you know for example at the moment i'm working on a project that three different institutions are collaborating so it means that i have a bit more production money it means that there's each institution's giving me a fee but that fee becomes uh threefold but it's still like those fees are not reflective of the work it's a year's work I mean I can say it's like it will be about six thousand pound fee for a year's work you know that's not reflective in any way of the kind of work that goes into it but it's better than having just <laughs> the one fee I guess um I did think that more collaborations definitely um maybe less I know that that would contradict the Arts Council thing of wanting more people to see it if you have a show that lasts longer obviously less people long term will see it but maybe show you know maybe you don't have to have a new show every two months maybe they can be lo longer um but I do I mean what's interesting I don't want to say the name of the place but in a previous discussion online about this um a public institution in um the north their director said that they wanted to pay artists what would have been a salary of management. So if let's say a show runs for three months, so that would be £7,500. That would be what management would be get, um, mm. would receive as a sal salary. And Arts Council refused that. So again, when I, when I apply for funding for Arts Council, I have to pay people um, a, their guidelines as to how much I should pay people. But then when it comes to the other side it doesn't work that way so that's one thing I think that there could be more but maybe it just it needs to be broken there needs to be a standard set which is like this is an hourly rate you calculate how long this is going to take you know obviously people work at different rates blah 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 but you, you know in every other sector they're able to do that they're able to say we consider I think that thing of having it as a salary for however long it runs is quite a good idea, actually. It's a good way to calculate it. Um, that's one idea. My my more militant idea would be that I think artists should write their own contracts and they should come to the institutions with their contracts as opposed to receiving a contract. Because also the other problem that happens is the first thing that goes if you go over budget is your fee. It's not ring-fenced off. You know, that's another thing. So you might get 3,000 fee, but then you go over budget by 1,200. That comes out of your budget. 
Right, so your, if your production fees exceed yeah. what they might have been, yeah. then the fee, fee yeah. it's the fee it's that, the first that, fee that suffers. Goes, yeah. Right, that's interesting. James, do you have any, any thoughts? I mean, I think, I think these are both compelling ideas. I mean, this idea, is it really too much for public institutions to pay artists a salary when they use them? Uh, it shouldn't be, and I don't think that uh, many would uh, survive in the court of artists' Twitter or public opinion <laughs> if they um, continue to not pay artists uh, for work that they're kind of taking advantage of or, or deriving value from. I think um, in terms of solutions, I, you know, I think uh, certainly picking up Ty's point about being kind of more adept to be able to navigate the current system and give some power or at least encourage some power on behalf of the individual artists. Uh, Recognize that's, you know, uh, not necessarily um, the easiest thing for all of of us to to kind of um, take hold of and to kind of go with. Um, But being more entrepreneurial and being uh, more... um, yeah, being more entrepreneurial and being more forceful and saying no more often uh, if you can bear it, I think yeah. might be a way to sort of strategically take advantage of the current system. I mean, I mean, what I would say is that this issue that we're discussing today has been a problem in the UK for, you know, 50, 60 years. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's only getting worse because... Uh, all of these things like automation, all of these things like a incredibly, you know, more educated uh, workforce, uh, the uh, sort of um, the hoarding of, of wealth and capital by the baby boomer generation yeah. as the next generations kind of come up through the system is incredibly problematic, uh, especially around uh, fostering diversity and, uh, and that sort of thing. Um, so if I were to come up with some solutions, they'd be pretty radical, actually, and um, wouldn't have much to do with art or the art sector. Um, I think one of the things that's really exciting is the idea of a universal basic income. Uh, it strangely has kind of more support from people whose lifestyles resemble that which you might have on a universal basic <laughs> income than it does on the sort of nine to five salary kind of uh, crowd. Um, but it would mean that this idea of precarity, if it works as it should do, would be removed from the artists. And it speaks to all of the things that artists say they want, which is more time to work on their creative practice. And if you're not scrabbling around for tiny bits of grant money or doing a Saturday job or asking people for favours and you can just work on your practice... Then, because you have that buffer that comes as a result of it, a universal income, a basic income, then uh, maybe that's kind of a pathway forward. I agree with that completely. And of course, you know, it's just the, the issues that artists have aren't um, like isolated in any way. And I agree that um, that kind of precarity is something that's shared um, um, along the workforce. I have uh, criticisms of, of universal basic income, not... not um, not capitalist ones, but I I mean, the thing is that I think the, the terminologies around it should change, but like basic conditions like living, food, these things should not be, they're a right, basically. They shouldn't be things that you have to um, accrue wealth to be able to, to afford. And, and you're right, the reason why it is exacerbated for me is also to do with austerity. It's also to do with the fact that we have a completely unregula- unregulated market around housing, studios, people pay extortionate amounts of money to have uh, an unheated, uh, un, in, you know, not secured studio in Lon- not even in. I'm talking about like in Croydon, you know. So the thing is that I agree there are it is, but in terms of what can happen on a, on a very immediate um, level, and I think that's the, that is the issue that when I have discussions with colleagues about this, we're, we're always trying to kind of uh, veer between the macro and the micro politics of it and wanting to also like draw uh, lines of solidarity that extend beyond the art world you know to um a labor force in all sectors basically but at the same time there are specific things as you say i mean it's interesting because when you think about cinema and how much money is sloshed around there it's it's astronomical and yet you don't have 
these uh, wealth figures that become like these kind of ciphers that you know represent it in a way which you you do have in in the art world so i think it's always been that way as well it's not new i mean it's yeah, on a back. smaller scale, but still, yeah, well, the vast inequality in the yeah, art world. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. But I think there has been the shift to like immaterial um, practices and and how, how they can, you know, like, it's not so simple as like doing a set of prints. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Um, I think there's this idea that, oh, yeah, you could just, you know, do a set of prints and sell them or just make them this smaller. Or it, it's not actually like that because I think having a commercial practice is a very complex thing. It's not. You know, it doesn't. It's not just a decision. Like, oh, okay, I'm going to make some work that can sell, and then it sells. Yeah, exactly. You know, you build something in the same way that you do it as a an art. I, I've never been concerned with having a commercial practice, um, but I've also been very in close proximity to theatre makers, where they, you know, do on paper similar practices to me. You know, experimental theatre and and the kind of um, expectations that they have are completely different, you know. So I think it's possible. There are very nearby examples of it working. So, I mean, the thing is that, that it's interesting is that, like, it's so unregulated, isn't it? Because you can do an Arts Council application or any of those grants um, and put a very big fee for yourself, and it won't be queried. That's the thing. But, like, not many artists, I think we're so kind of vested in this idea of gratitude as well that like when it comes to um doing a project you're like oh, i won't ask for more than this because you know it will mean asking above a certain idea of let's say ten thousand or whatever so you're not going to ask for as much as you think you should be paid there are lots of you know like there's wage there are lots of people that are trying to find ways to address this but i i feel like it really has to come um and again as you said if I was to do this contract, um, you know, I, I've worked 20 years to be in a position where maybe I, maybe I could do a contract like that. But you're right. It's not not everyone would feel they can do that. I wonder if Ty is uh, pushing up against this idea of, you know, you describe it as being very unregulated and that's completely true. Um, and that suits some vested interests, it yeah. being that way, of course. Um, but it also... I think sometimes for artists feels right that, you know, it shouldn't be regimented and sometimes it shouldn't be formalised and it shouldn't have, uh, you know, strict boundaries around the way in which you go about your practice. Um, and there's a there's a real kind of paradox or a tension in, in that, um, you know, the, pr- the pragmatic practical realities of getting by as uh, a person with bills to pay uh, versus the vision that you have for yourself as a limitless free spirit wanting Mm. to kind of, uh, you know, not be part of any club or structure or hierarchy and that kind of stuff. I mean, I I don't know. I think, you know, if you're an academic, there is a grade that that applies to teach. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I, I think most people would be quite happy with, regulation around money mm-hmm. <laughs> actually I do um you know I, I don't think anyone would would complain about that I mean technicians you see this is the thing about proximity is technicians that work in galleries they do have a rate mm. um that and they're very regulated. often actually artists aren't they a lot yeah, of technicians exactly. yeah. they are yeah and that you know so that so you can be in a position where you you could be paid more as a technician for doing something which isn't wrong by the way I don't have a problem with that, but it's regulated. There's an idea, this is my daily rate, Mm, Um, you know, and this is how many days I'm working. That's all I want is some kind of, um, you know, translation between time and money, baby. No, you know, like (laughs) I want there to be some kind of acknowledgement of that. I'd like to end, Ty, by talking about a very positive experience, actually, yeah. which was your residency at Weising Arts yes. Centre. And, and I think this speaks to what it could mean for artists to actually be, be properly funded yeah. and supported. Yeah. Can you tell us about that experience mm. and why it was important to you and your practice? Yeah, I mean, Weising have changed... Um, this is in Cambridge, Weising yeah, Arts Centre. Weising Arts Centre. They've slightly changed the the, the structure of that residency since. Um, and But they're very aware. They're very politically aware as an organisation. And they accommodate people that can, you know, might have families that 
because that's the other thing is that everything is geared towards young people. It's like you you have residencies come for a month to Mexico. It's like I'd love to, but I have a job and the partner or a child or you know there there are all these things that kind of mean that you can't do those things or you know like within 10 years of graduation why you know why are these I don't understand that fixation on helping younger people and that that completely uh, evaporates at a certain point so Wising they offered at the time it was a seven-week residency that included uh, somewhere to live a studio and at the time, it was four thousand uh, pounds fee and an all-in kind of thing. So, if you uh, didn't want to make anything, you didn't make anything. If you wanted to use that to make stuff, you could. It's completely up to you how you use that time. And I didn't appreciate it at the time how instrumental it was for me because I arrived in London in two thousand and one. I've worked as a barista as uh, I made uh, dildos in a sex shop I made the actual dildos I was known as the dildo doctor (laughs) I worked as an usher I worked as a PA I worked as uh, a waitress in a Michelin star I worked in hundreds of different things but I never in all that time had seven weeks that I was just that my job was being an artist where I woke up in the morning afternoon went to the studio, worked for seven, eight hours, and then had the evening to not do that, to just be like, not admin, not, um, you know, thinking about a proposal, just I'm going to cook a meal and do whatever I want to do. And it was completely amazing. My practice completely changed over that time. It's really like everything I make now I feel can be traced back to those weeks because they're things that you can't account for they're things that happen they're types of frustrations that happen there's something that happens to your headspace when you're not like consistently you know veering between these different modes of being where you're just that's what you're doing that's it so so you were sort of permitted an imaginative space for your art basically and a kind of practical space for your art yeah it wasn't as loose as that I I was working on a show for them actually so it was I did have like it wasn't just like I'm going to contemplate the universe it was actually like I'm, I'm working on a show but it was that thing of like not I'm working on Monday Tuesday on the show and then teaching Thursday and then going to give a talk in Norwich and then you know it was the thing where it was like this is what I'm doing for the next few weeks so it means that you you know you start really having a different headspace that I can't even I don't think it's somewhere you can reach without having time if that makes sense. Ty thank you so much for sharing that with us James thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. You can read James's opinion piece in the print edition of the art newspaper, which is out now. And you can follow Ty on Twitter at Ty underscore Sharni. We'll be back talking to Jory Finkel in LA after this. Dame Laura Knight had a lifelong fascination with the circus. Her passion was shared by the man, a major athlete, who in the 1920s commissioned one of her most striking and ambitious circus paintings, Charivari. The work teems with life. Knight portrays the choreographed chaos of the whole circus troupe, brilliantly capturing the rhythmic tension of so many components tumbling alongside each other. She even found space for the major's dog. A fully realised sketch for Charivari is offered at Bonham's 19th century European, Victorian and British Impressionist art sale in London in February. As the department head Charles O'Brien explains, this highly detailed sketch greatly helped Knight refine the composition of what she herself called a complicated piece of work. Indeed, almost all her ideas are reflected in the finished painting. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello again. Now, it's a busy month for art in California. The first Freeze Los Angeles Art Fair is just about to begin as we record this, and last week the latest edition of the Desert X Biennial opened in the Coachella Valley. Jory Finkel is the art newspaper's Los Angeles-based correspondent, and she joins me now to discuss both events and the wider picture in California. Jory, let's start with Desert X. Um, first of all, some of our listeners may not know what Desert X is, so tell us, give us a bit of background. Desert X is a really fun event that basically feels like a scavenger hunt for people visiting the desert in the winter. Um, They didn't commit to a biennial schedule, but it is on a biennial schedule so far. It started two years ago. So 2017 was the first edition. 
did it have an immediate sort of following? Did it gain a big audience immediately? How did it how did it compare to sort of other big events in Californian art scene? I think Desert X made a really big impact first time around, and it got tons of press. Um, you can imagine uh, a lot of people like to go to the desert in the winter, but I was really surprised by, you know, we're talking about hundreds of stories and different kinds of magazines following these artworks um, wherever they happen to be placed. Is it is it a sort of do it in your car type biennial or is there other sort of are there other for more uh, or are there other means of transport that you can take how 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 does one uh make the journey yeah that's a really good question it is um it is something you very much do yourself they give you a map um and i think you can download a map as well but you're going to be in your own car um, searching for these works which is why i compared it to a scavenger hunt that there's kind of an adventure uh, adventurousness to this particular type of biennial or art event. And and do you feel like the second iteration has sort of built on the strengths of the first? Uh, unfortunately, I would have to say no, that I think the expectations were really high. And um, I think this edition has been disappointing in many ways. I mean, going back to the first, so in 2017, Neville Wakefield is the artistic director. It's the very first edition. And he um, manages to get a list together of 16 artists, including some really big names. Richard Prince um, made this crazy, uh, trashed, drug den of, or he trashed a drug den of a house in Palm Desert um, by plastering his own uh, Instagram posts all over it. Um, he trashed an already trashed house. Uh, Doug Aiken did this mirrored cabin that got a lot of attention um, and was a real uh, crowd pleaser. Uh, he had a lot of uh, of big artists and more importantly, kind of destination artworks. Um, I thought the problem with the first edition is that it had a very macho swagger to it, that Neville Wakefield had this idea of the desert as a place where a man goes to lose himself. Um, and it was very specific and therefore excluded women for the most part. I think there were only four women out of the 16 artists in the first year. But apart from the gender imbalance, he really did succeed in a way, um, creating something uh, exciting that people felt like they had to see. And, and unfortunately, that just isn't the case with this year's edition. Some works are good, some works are really bad, and a lot of works are kind of middling. So in the sense that you said that there were sort of lots of destination artworks, so when you say they're middling, it's the sort of work that you feel that the audience may not strive to see in the same way. Right. Or they may show up and it doesn't really register as art. I mean, that's the worst case scenario in this new edition is that there's a work by this group called Post Commodity done in a uh, mid-century house. And you get in there and you don't really even know where the work is or what it is. And it turns out to be an audio installation, but you can't hear what they're saying. Um, so it really kind of fell flat. And, and behind that, you can really uh, begin to sense that they ran out of time and ran out of money this year. Do you know anything about the reasons for that? Is, can you explain why they might have run out of money? It's just that the, 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 the initial pot wasn't big enough or did funders pull out? I think that's a really good question. Uh, without going into all of the specifics, I think the timing was too tight, that two years was not enough time to raise the money needed. Also, my understanding is that the first time around, some of these bigger artists had to kick in money themselves to finish their productions. And maybe this time around, the artists didn't have the same level of galleries backing them. I see. Yeah, so that's the thing. If you're going to work with big artists, you can also have the big galleries backing them. If you're going to work with more esoteric or emergent artists, then finances become a problem. That's right. The budget. Um, I believe they gave $25,000 to each artist as a project budget. And then the artist got a fee on top of that. Given that there were some works that weren't so good, tell us about some of the highlights. Yeah, you know, I really love Julian Hober's um, building or sculpture, um, which uh, is a kind of standalone piece in the desert. And it, it basically is the real physical realization or materialization of a Mobius strip. So it's something 
where the inside becomes the outside and the outside becomes the inside. And it has this kind of maze-like quality. And I thought it was very effective and experiential. You know, um, you, you go in, you come out of it feeling differently than when you went in. Um, I think Sterling Ruby's kind of brilliant orange plastic cube in the desert is going to get a lot of attention. It looks like a John McCracken object with this really beautiful finish, um, kind of finished fetish object. Um, but just a plain, a, a very plain sculpture in this brilliant orange. And it, it's the fact that he set it against a desert setting that makes it so powerful. And then a third work that I think is worth mentioning is Pia Camille's Lover's Rainbow, it's called, where she has built this gigantic rainbow out of rebar. And rebar, of course, is a material we associate with construction. And so, I, and she's built one of them in the desert and she's built a matching rainbow in Mexico. And I think spanning the border this way is, is a way for her to get at issues of immigration, of immigrant labor, of the immigrants who build our society. Are there themes that dominate? Because obviously that from the from this side of the pond, that would seem to be the dominant issue in the States in terms of Trump's border wall and all that. Is, is, is there a sense in which artists are engaging with this, with the present day realities? Yeah, I don't think it's a huge theme. I mean, it's it's everywhere in every show, museum, gallery and and public art. Um I mean, even in, two, in 2017, there was a wall built by an artist, Claudia Count, and everybody read it as a commentary on Trump's wall, and she didn't even intend it that way. It was built before he was elected. Right. <laughs> um, so it's, you know, it, it is, I feel like it's part of the air we breathe. It's in the show, but it's not, it's not necessarily the most explicit or dramatic thing. Uh-huh. And is, are there any overall overarching themes, do you sense, or do you feel that it's very much about the individual artworks that you journey between, as you were saying? I think if you want to connect the dots, you you can definitely see something in the way, you know, all of most of these works are actually set outside somewhere. So there is definitely a sense of our relationship to nature, the fragile ecology of the desert shows up as a theme. Uh-huh. Now, moving back to the city, Freeze. What's the mood in LA about Freeze coming to town? I think a lot of people are excited. And, uh, you know, I can tell you my mood is that I'm I'm surprised by how many people are coming to town for this fair. I mean, we're talking over 30 museum groups flying out for this fair. When you say museum groups, do you mean from museum groups from other cities across the states? Uh, no, actually, from across the states and internationally. So the Serpentine is sending out a group. The Louvre has a group. You know, collectors are coming um, from other cities in the states, but also other cities uh, abroad. In terms of size, how does it compare to, for instance, Freeze London and Freeze New York? It is much smaller here. It's a smaller enterprise. So we um, Freeze LA will have 70 galleries. New York had 190 and London had about 170 last time around. Um, so we're talking about less than half the size. But do you, you get the sense that, well, I certainly get the sense that Freeze are, qual- are focusing on quality as opposed to quantity, right? Yeah, absolutely. That they're trying to make this a manageable fare um, and make it a good experience for people, uh, not so overwhelming. Um, I think it's one other thing that may make this a little bit more hospitable for artists, Um that it's not it doesn't feel like a juggernaut in some ways is there a sense in which i mean i i've always perceived that la has taken a certain pride in the fact that that new york is the kind of commercial center for the art world and uh la there's a bit more of a looser much more kind of artist driven culture is that uh, is that a reality or is that or is that just a sort of um misconception I think that's true. I mean, certainly we don't we don't have the auctions, for example. So the auctions alone make New York more of an art market center than L.A. is or probably ever will be. Um, so, yeah. So 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 I do think L.A. is more artist centric in that sense. But can 
artists get behind an art fair coming to town because there's a you know when you talk to artists often there's a sort of very lukewarm feeling about about art fairs there's a sort of necessity in terms of selling work but artists don't tend to express enjoyment of art fairs very much true um i mean i think there are two things at play here one is that freeze is known for being a little more artist centric because of their artist projects their curated projects and they put together a great team on the ground here so the uh, Bettina Korek is the Freeze LA director, and Ali Subotnik, who uh, came fresh from the Hammer Museum, is curating the projects. Um, I mean, Ali is somebody artists love to work with, and she is working with 16 artists for these projects that will be taking place on the Paramount lot itself, where the fair is. That's it. It's on the Paramount lot. So there's this sort of um, very direct connection with this sort of history of Hollywood and, and, and L.A. as a centre for the movie industry. It's kind of a neat way of connecting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, right. This is an art fair taking place at the heart of the Hollywood Dream Factory. Um, it's on stage sets. Well, the the artist works. Um, the artist commissions are on the stage set. That That is a New York style back lot it pretends to be the new york city streets with brown brownstones and tenement buildings and a financial district um and then there's a tent right next door where the galleries will be housed and do you sense have you have you got an idea of the sort of mood among the galleries that are going to be presenting their work are they bringing their best works do you feel that there's a sort of uh, sense of anticipation from that side i feel like they are um and you know, for me, the point of contrast is that uh, eight or nine years ago, the Armory Show tried a fair here in L.A., and it was – it bombed. It really lasted – it lasted two years. It took place the same year as the first Pacific Standard Time, and so they thought, oh, all these people coming to town, this would be a perfect time to try a fair. But they really didn't have um, the right stakeholders, and the galleries weren't – supportive enough and and I don't think they were the booths were good enough. Um so yeah, there is a sense this time that especially the LA galleries or those big international galleries like Hauser and Worth that have LA presences are going to bring out their best stuff. What about the wider scene because obviously in London one of the things that happened was Freeze arrived and then immediately the whole art world including museums and, and the whole rest of it got into gear and then organize their programs around it it was it was a bit a bit of a shock to some of us who thought that uh, museums might might not be so commercially minded but but it's really is, interesting is, is, is that happening in LA too are you sense the whole thing's kind of got it got a whole juggernaut of art world behind it yeah yeah to some extent museums are definitely organizing events for the week um they are I think uh, they they are have planned too far out in terms of their exhibitions to organize exhibitions that open this week or that um, can support the fair in any way. Um, but you are definitely seeing the galleries come all out for it. Um, there are some really big gallery shows opening this week, like Blum and Poe has this new Japanese survey of artwork from the 80s and 90s, organized by the same uh, guest curator who did their Mano Ha show, which was eye-opening. Um, so that's really exciting. Suzanne Vilmitter is opening her second space downtown this week. Um, so there's a lot of activity on the gallery front. And then um, basically, Freeze becomes Freeze Week, as they like to say, because there are a bunch of other fairs that are going to take place this week as well. Um, I just did a count for you, and there are five small fairs that are piggybacking on Freeze. So two of those are hotel fairs. Um, it's the Felix at the Roosevelt and Startup um, in Venice Beach. Um, and then and then a few, a couple others take place downtown. And one of them is an existing fair called ALAC, Art LA Contemporary, that has been limping along for a while. It's now in its 10th year. Um, it's not a horrible fair, but it's very local. Local galleries will do it because it doesn't cost a lot of money. International galleries who've tried it before did not come back. Right. So I, I guess all the international presence will be at Freeze, or, or is there a sense in which there are perhaps smaller international galleries taking part in some of these other ones? I think there are smaller international galleries. For example, Felix is this art fair organized by Dean Valentine, the collector. Um, and he mentioned to me a gallery from Sydney that's coming. And yeah, I think there are, there's a, a bit of an international presence elsewhere. So what do you expect the legacies will be of this? Do you think now that this will at last give LA a kind of stellar and 
regularly repeating art fair? What what do you what, what are your expectations? Yeah, that is the big question. You know, L.A. has been a graveyard for art fairs in the past. One after another has tried. I mentioned the Armory Show, but there was also uh, the Perry Photo spinoff. And my favorite was FIAC was going to uh, do a fair here. They canceled it before it even started. Um, so, so, so the big question is, how long can this fair last? And I, I think what people are watching is to see how well the international galleries do, because it's just not that big of a commitment for the local galleries. Um, The international galleries, White Cube, does White Cube want to come back to LA after this fair? Um, And, um, you know, so far this, you know, so far everything's in place uh, to make this a good event and a good experience for visitors. We do expect a rainy forecast so that um, may dampen spirits a little bit. Joey, thank you so much for talking to us. Oh, thank you, Ben. It's always a pleasure. Freeze Los Angeles continues until Sunday the 17th of February and Desert X continues until the 21st of April. You can follow all the art newspaper's coverage of Freeze on our website, theartnewspaper.com. And that's all for this week. Please do subscribe if you haven't already, and you can follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio. You can also find the art newspaper on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. If you'd like to subscribe to the monthly print edition of the art newspaper, you can do so at subscribe.theartnewspaper.com. The producers of the art newspaper podcast are Julia Machowska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David also does the editing. Thanks to Ty and James, to Jory, and thank you for listening. Next week, we interview Anthony Gormley about his exhibition at the Uffizi Gallery in Florence. See you then. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. <laughs>